In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you Sorry, why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we are more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should eat all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give further instructions. Now, if you don't uh, know me, one of the things you may not know about me is that I really do enjoy going for a hike. Uh, The longer, the better. Uh, And uh, so this is Hannah, this is my eldest. Uh, We had just walked about 150 kilometres at this point, over about nine to ten days, I think it was from memory. Uh, And uh, we finished and then it started snowing. So, uh, you know, it's a great thing to do. I I really encourage you. Uh, Karen and I, we uh, are heading off later this year for 17 days, uh, carrying everything on our back. Uh, And uh, I don't need to tell you that it's actually physically demanding. To go the distance actually takes a lot and you need to do a lot of planning and a lot of prep to actually make it happen. And the number one thing you need is the right food. You actually need to get down and count the calories to actually make sure that you've actually got enough energy in your pack to carry your pack. Otherwise, uh, the results can be fairly catastrophic, really. Uh, You basically just run out of steam. Uh, You've got to have the right food. And if you've been with us for our series, you will realise the little analogy that I'm using here. Because the Christian life is like going on a hike. But it's a hike that begins at conversion and ends when Christ returns or we go to be with him. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And if we're going to make the distance fit and healthy, 
We need the right food. And so we've been talking about what is on God's menu. And uh, this is what people throughout history, Christians throughout history, have called the means of grace. How is it that God feeds us? What is it that he promises to supply to give us what we need to grow us in Christ? So that we might reach the end uh, more like Christ, that we might serve him and bring him honour and glory on the way. And we've been looking at them, haven't we? Matt took us through the word of God and prayer. Two things that God has given us that we might grow in our relationship with him. And last week, I uh, took us to the first of what we call sacraments, baptism, uh, and no one lynched me, which was wonderful. Um, Maybe some of you weren't here last week, so you can go and listen to it and work out whether you agree with me or not on that one. And now we're going to that less controversial issue of the Lord's Supper. These are things, these four things are things that in Scripture are given to us by God that we may grow to maturity in Christ. So we're going to explore the Lord's Supper under four headings, which are the same four headings that we've used for all four sermons, uh, except I've put D's in there. Uh, Someone brought to my attention that it's an Anglican disease of alliteration. Uh, I didn't see it as a connection of Anglican, but uh, I have to admit I do love alliteration, so I've added two more Ds. Uh, Defined, what is it? Defended, what it's not. Designed, how does God use it? And deployed, how do we use it? So let's dive in and explore defined. What is the Lord's Supper? Now, some of you weren't here last week, so we're going to do a quick bit of revision about this word, okay? What is a sacrament? Because sacrament is kind of the umbrella term that we put the Lord's Supper and baptism underneath. There are only two sacraments. Both of them are things given to us by the Lord Jesus. Uh, Baptism, he commands in uh, Matthew 28, Uh, And the Lord's Supper, uh, in the Last Supper, in that upper room, he tells them to keep on doing it uh, until he returns. And so those two things Christ has given us. uh, And we have called them, we being Christian churches and all that kind of stuff, have called them sacraments. Now, does anyone remember what the definition of a sacrament is? Okay, is anyone brave enough? Simon? An outward physical sign of an inward spiritual, Simon said, reality. I think I used the word grace because I just copied and pasted my notes from last week. uh, That is there. But this is the thing. It is a sign that points us to something else. It is an outward physical sign. Baptism, it's the washing in the water. The Lord's Supper, it's bread and it's wine or grape juice that is there. It's outward and physical, but it points us to something else. And in the kids' talk last week, we explored this a little bit. It's kind of like Queen Elizabeth's crown, okay? I don't know if you've thought about the Lord's Supper or baptism like the Queen Elizabeth's crown, but the crown represents power and authority, It represents something else 
that stands behind it. I could, I could sneak in to Buckingham Palace. I think if that's where they keep the crown. I don't know where they keep it. Uh, but I could sneak in and I could put it on my head and it would mean absolutely nothing other than I'd probably get arrested. Okay? Uh, it is only what it symbolises in terms of the power and authority invested in her by the traditions and the rules and the laws that stand behind that. So that crown represents that authority invested in her. The crown by itself, just as a reminder, it points us to that. It's not that she had no power before she puts it on, and then when she puts it on, all of a sudden she's transformed like, you know, one of those superhero comics. It's not like that at all. The power is there because it's actually invested in her. That just represents it. It's the same with sacraments. The power, if you want to talk about it like that, it actually rests in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And baptism and the Lord's Supper, they point us to that. Okay, so let's explore the Lord's Supper a little bit more uh, in depth. Now, if, you, if you've never been around Christian churches, this is the symbolic meal of bread and wine that Christians celebrate when they come together, okay? Uh, they celebrate it, uh, and they have been doing so for the past two millennia. And this bread and this wine, uh, or grape juice as we use, uh, it's a sign of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus spells it out, doesn't he? At that last supper, in that upper room, he speaks of his body given, his blood shed. The apostle Paul picks up those words in 1 Corinthians that Lockie read for us this morning, and he talks about them in this way that uh, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he passed it around. This is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you. This is what Jesus is saying. It's a symbol that points us to, in the last supper, to what was going to happen the next day. And in the Lord's supper that we celebrate, what happened on that Passover Friday. It symbolically retells the story of the gospel, the fact that Christ stood in our place, bore our sins on the cross, that his body was broken, his blood was shed for us in this great act of salvation. And it was really no coincidence that Jesus picks up another symbolic meal. So if you know your gospel stories the Last Supper is the Passover meal. It's a meal that the Jewish people had celebrated. And if you've ever uh, seen the Passover meal, and we've, we've had a few Passover meals here at Trinity Church Brighton, where we share uh, bitter herbs and hummus and um, lamb and flatbread and all these kind of things. And they're all symbolic of what God did to save his people from Egypt and the slavery there. But Jesus picks up the, uh, the Passover meal 
and he transforms it. And so instead of speaking of how God had saved Israel, he spoke of what the fulfillment of that Passover was going to be. The fact that he had come, the Passover lamb, that his blood was shed, that judgment might pass over God's people. And so Paul, he speaks of it here. Jesus takes bread, gives thanks, breaks it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new arrangement, the new agreement, the new uh, relationship forged in his blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so... Jesus gave us a simple little meal to remind us of uh, the fact that his body was broken. His blood was shed for us. But there's more. It's more than just a pure symbol. And Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving, that's the, 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 the wine, uh, a participation or a sharing in the, body, in the blood of Christ. Is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Paul is saying that as we eat and drink, we actually share the body and blood of Christ. Now, Paul is not saying, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, that the bread is the body of Jesus. The bread is bread. The juice is juice. But what he is saying is because the power of a sacrament is in the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit is to take those gospel promises and bring them to bear in our hearts. So as we eat, as we drink, and as we hear those words... The work of the Spirit is to remind us and to encourage us that we are united with Christ through faith. That is what Paul is talking about. This is a reminder that we share in Christ's death. That as Christ died, we died with him. That as Christ was buried, we were buried with him. And as Christ rose again, we rose again with him. That's throughout the New Testament, Paul and others talk in this way, that we are united to Christ. And as we come to the Lord's Supper a little bit later, we will be reminded that by faith, what he did, we share. We are part of it. That is the reminder. We are now part of his covenant people. We are loved. We are made clean. We are forgiven. We are accepted because of the work of the gospel. And the faith that the Spirit has worked in us, it brings us into that reality. And as we eat and drink, we are reminded. And so the Spirit provokes us to rejoice in what Christ has done. So what is it? It is a symbolic meal that points us to the gospel, particularly to the fact that what Christ did, he did for us, and the faith that he has given us meant that it is 
a sharing that we have. So what is it not? Now, if you've read any church history or you're aware of any church history, you'll know how much blood has been shed on this topic and not Jesus's blood. Christians have fought about this forever. It is one of those things like baptism, this great symbol of unity that has divided God's people. And that is a tragedy. So let me say, as we start, it's important that we get this right. And if we have questions, please do come and ask. But I'd like to say, first and foremost, the Lord's Supper is not magic. Have you ever heard the term hocus pocus? Okay, some of you will have heard of this. Do you know where it comes from? Does anyone know the origin of the term hocus pocus? You know, magic toys, maybe kids have been playing, you know, Harry Potter games or whatever. Okay, it actually comes from the Latin, hoc est corpus meum. Any, any uh, Latin scholars out there? Do you know what hoc est corpus meum means? This is my body in Latin. It actually comes from the Latin mass. And the reformers, the Protestant reformers, to make a statement about how they differed from the Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper, they used this hocus pocus. It's magic because some Christian traditions maintain that what happens when a special person comes up and says the right words in the right way, that the bread is transformed and it becomes the body of Christ. And the wine is transformed and it becomes the blood of Christ actually. Others, others will say, oh, no, 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 no. It's still bread, but it's also the body. It's still blood. It's still wine, but it's also blood. They've got technical terms. You may have heard of them for the nerds amongst you, theological nerds. One's called transubstantiation. That's the, it's transformed. One's consubstantiation. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church believes, maintains transubstantiation. The Lutheran Church, consubstantiation. What do we believe? We believe that it's bread and it's wine, but it points us to the actual body and blood of Christ shed on the cross. It's 100% symbolic. Why would I say that? Well, the first thing I would say is when Jesus said those words, this is my body, he was sitting there amongst them. And so obviously it was not his body that he passed around the table. It was a piece of bread. And I don't think the disciples would have thought, oh, I've got Jesus's right thumb or something. It's not. It was obviously a symbol and it was built on a meal, the Passover meal, that was symbolic. And the Jewish people never thought that they were actually eating the bread from the Passover or the, that the hummus represented the mortar of affliction. Uh, they knew it was symbolic. And Jesus picks up a symbolic meal and obviously uses it in a symbolic way. That is there. So that's why I don't think anything particularly magical happens. It's very powerful, but it's powerful because of what it points to, not because of what it is. And the danger if we go down this line, if we believe that somehow this becomes 
the body and blood of Christ is we can start worshipping bread and juice rather than Christ. We can start focusing on this having some kind of special properties rather than Christ. And we can start seeing that what Jesus did on the cross is insufficient. That we need priests to sacrifice Christ again and again and again. Where we believe Christ died once for all for the forgiveness of sins. And so it's not magic. It's also not mystic. It is not meant to be this mystical encounter just between you and the Lord. Can I say it is that, but it's not just that. You cannot separate the vertical, you and the Lord, from the horizontal. This is why we celebrate it when we come together. We don't celebrate it in isolation in our homes. We're not told to do that, but we are told that as we come together, we celebrate the family meal. And if you look in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, the relationships are key. And the issue isn't that they don't have the right words. The issue is that they're not doing the relationships right. And so they're not seeing the connection between the vertical, us and God, and the horizontal, us with each other. What we have is not a mystical experience, but a family gathering as we come together around the Lord's table. The other thing is, the third thing it's not, is it's not for everyone. The Lord's Supper is a meal for the family of God. And so if you're someone who hasn't worked out who Jesus is, what it means to follow him, you haven't put your trust in him, if you don't see yourself as a Christian person, this is not for you. It's a meal for God's people. And because we're saved by grace, it's not because we're better than you. It's just that we have received God's offer of forgiveness that is freely available to you as well. But it is not for all. It's also, as we will explore in a little bit, it's for people who are in good standing with God and with others. So there may be times where you choose not to share the Lord's Supper. There may be times when you know that there is a breach in relationship between you and someone else and you need to set that straight. Or there may be an issue that you need to do, deal with before God, before you come to the Lord's table. I can remember a time uh, where I had a massive disagreement with my boss. Okay, and this is while I was an ordained minister in a church. Okay, and I felt in good conscience I couldn't take the Lord's Supper until I had actually tried to deal with that. It doesn't mean that every relationship is perfect. But it means that as much as it depends upon you, you have sought to set things right with God and with others. Because that is important. But let me say, there are some, and I'm, I'm pretty sure there are some here this morning. And you don't take the Lord's Supper because you don't feel worthy. You feel that you're not good enough in some way. Uh, and maybe, maybe there's something that's happened in your life and you feel defiled you feel not worthy maybe there's some other issue that's there can i say 
unless it is an issue of sin between you and another, that you are living in a manner that is completely inconsistent with your faith. If I've, let me illustrate. If I've had a huge fight with Karen, I haven't. That's not why she's not here this morning. Uh, she's down, taking Rebecca down for a holiday, down to Robe or Kingston or somewhere. Uh, so if I'd had a huge fight with Karen and, and I, I'm just churning up and really, really angry and thinking all sorts of bad things about Karen, that is inconsistent with my Christian faith. Yes? <laughs> okay. And I'm there going, you know, I know that I've got to deal with that before I sort out. I come to the Lord's table. That's there. But there are some that something's happened. There's been a breakdown in relationships. Something else has happened. Something has happened to us. And it's not a situation of sin where we feel, uh, I have to set this straight. You can't set it straight. Maybe it's a breakdown in relationship. Maybe a wife or husband has left you. And you sit there and go, that relationship is, uh, you know, as much as it depends upon you, have you sought to set that straight? Can you deal with those things before God? And if you can say yes, we come to the Lord's table not because we are worthy, but because he has made us worthy. We come by grace. Remember that. Don't think that God can't wash your sin clean. That is what we remind ourselves of as we come to the Lord's table, that Christ's blood has washed us clean, that his body has been broken, that our sin might be separated from us. That is what we remind ourselves of. So don't come or don't not come because you don't think you're worthy. Because no one is worthy except that Christ make them worthy. Okay. How does God use it? I've talked about it. God uses it because he's presenting in a visual medium the gospel. As we eat and drink, we remember Christ's death. That is there. But I'd like to draw out three particular aspects of the gospel and its implications. It draws us to the past. So as we share the Lord's Supper, God draws us back to Calvary, to the hill where Christ was crucified, to where his body was broken, to where his blood was shed. He draws us back to the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he also draws us into the present. Because of the past, he's brought us into his family. And he draws us into the fact that we are all brothers and sisters together because we are in Christ because of the gospel and so Paul actually says this he says because there is only one loaf we who are many are one body because we all share in the one loaf okay what he's talking about here is the symbolism of one loaf of bread it's not that one loaf makes us one body it's that the one loaf symbolizes that uh, that we are in Christ And in the present, that we are part of God's people. But it also draws us to the future. Because Jesus says, do this whenever you meet together. Paul here is saying, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we look for the future where what this points to will be fulfilled. 
where we will sit with Christ in the heavenly banquet. So there is a past and a present and a future. So what might we do with it now? How do we use this means of grace? Let me give you a few points. There's, there's four main things. Paul tells us that if we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper properly, we need to examine ourselves. Okay? So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. What's that mean? It means that if I'm cherishing sin and then I'm taking a sign that's pointing to me to the forgiveness of sins, I'm saying I love the thing that Christ died to get rid of. Does that make sense? So it just shows you how inconsistent that actually is. It's like, uh, if you'll forgive the fairly coarse illustration, it's like jumping out of your lover's bed and then going to your wedding anniversary dinner. It doesn't really work, does it? You've broken the relationship or you've cherished something that violates that relationship and then you celebrate it. How's that work? If we cherish sin and then rejoice in the fact that sin is forgiven, that is what it means to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. So Paul says everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We should What's a better word? Examine ourselves. We should look at our lives before we come to the Lord's table. Now, if you have ever been part of a more traditional church, I can only speak of my background. I've served in numbers of different churches over the time. People used to come. They used to come early. They used to come and sit quietly in the, in the pews. We had pews. They were designed to be the most uncomfortable seats you've ever sat in. Stop you falling asleep in the sermons. That's what they're there for. Okay. They'd sit there, but they would reflect upon their life and their relationship with God and with others. We've kind of lost that because we love coming together. There's a great coffee cart down the back. Okay. But maybe we, I don't want to get rid of the coffee cart. But maybe we need to find another way to have this examine yourself moment. Because Paul tells us that it's serious. That the Corinthians, through the abuses of the Lord's Supper, had come under God's judgment. We should look at ourselves before God and with others. And as much as is possible and in our power, set things right. Paul tells us to discern the body. Verse 29, those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, Paul is not saying discern the body. Ah, it's the bread. No. The body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Let me be Australian. Yous are the body of Christ. Plural. Together. And if you read 1 Corinthians 11 in its whole context in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul isn't cranky that they don't have the right sacramental theology. Paul's cranky that they haven't worked out its implications, that what we do with the Lord's Supper and what it represents needs to affect how we relate together as a church, our relationships with one another. 
And if we come by faith, united to Christ and are included into him, and these others are as well, that means that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we cannot hate those whom God loves. We cannot treat them as irrelevant. We cannot trample all over them. What you're you're reminding yourselves of here is that by grace, we are part of God's family. We need to recognize that and see that as, as powerful. We need to also rejoice in Christ. The Lord's Supper should be a time literally where we count our blessings. I have been chosen by God. I am a recipient of grace. All my sin, past, present and future, has been paid for by Christ on the cross. Done. I am an heir with Christ of every spiritual blessing. I have a guaranteed hope, a future with him in eternity. Because of Christ, the Father looks at me and smiles. And the words that he said to Jesus, this is my beloved son. He says about me, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. These are my beloved children as we come to the lord's supper don't just go oh yeah bread juice think about what it represents and rejoice and lastly live out its implications i've talked a lot about the one another aspect of this meal live united seek to bridge those barriers that are there don't just Settle into familiar patterns of behaviour. Rejoice that God has made us, regardless of age, educational capacities, gender, race. Think about the barriers that we erect. And in Christ, they have been done away with. So what do we need to do? So maybe after the Lord's Supper, one thing, and this is just a suggestion, maybe what you do is you say, I'm going to celebrate the unity I have in Christ. I'm going to find one person that I don't know. And I'm going to say, I'd like to get to know you because you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. And have a conversation over coffee a little bit later. Maybe that's something simple you could do. There's no rules, there's no laws there. But do we live out the implications of the Lord's Supper? Let me tell you how we do things here at Trinity Brighton. Except for today, which is a fourth Sunday, we do the Lord's Supper third Sundays. So put it in your diary. Lord's Supper today. Maybe make an appointment on the Saturday that maybe if you are going to examine yourself, that you actually make a special time to sit down and actually think, Actually, I'm going to share the Lord's Supper tomorrow. This is important. I want to do this having been obedient to what Paul asks. I'm going to allow time. We normally do the Lord's Supper up front. The one thing I love about that is because our younger brothers and sisters in Christ can be with us. The disadvantage is, is that I see people coming in halfway through. And so how can we prepare our hearts and our minds to celebrate, to rejoice, to feed on Christ 
in the gospel behind these symbols. If we've just run in. So maybe on the third Sunday, you set an alarm that 15 minutes early, you come, the coffee cup's cranking from half past nine. Come early, have that time, make sure you're here, make sure you're ready. Don't just focus on doing it, but deliberately choose to go through the sign to what it symbolises. Go from the bread and the juice to the body and blood shed for you and rejoice in him. Amen.